This week's episode is brought to you by the Film Rescue Show. The Film Rescue Show is a long-form podcast in which their crew and a guest fix a film every week. Want a good first episode? Check out episode 89 with Axel and myself, where he pitched fixes for the League of Extraordinary Drummond. Still waiting on that call, Warner Brothers. For fans of filmmaking, writing, and behind-the-scenes content, check out the Film Rescue Show on all your favorite podcasting sites today. Hey guys, Lord Commander Ulrich here, popping in real quick with a couple quick notes. We know right off the top that yeah, the audio quality isn't as good on my end as we'd like it to be. We're attributing that to a faulty Discord connection. We did our best. And secondly, we were idiots and completely spaced that Glass Onion was coming out a few days later. Uh, so we don't talk about that. It doesn't pop up in our honorable mentions. We completely forgot it was coming out. Uh, needless to say, now that I've seen it, it probably would have been in my top 10. Uh, look forward to it maybe next year. Just wanted to address that and avoid any, any unpleasant comments. All right. Enjoy the episode, guys. Hello, and welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the Nerdcast timeline. I'm Mark Robert and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. How's it going today, man? It's going all right, and as you, the listener, might notice, Oryx's quality is not up to, you know, what it normally is. We don't necessarily know why, but uh, this happens sometimes. <laughs> I have a theory that I will credit to... There is a huge winter storm barreling over the top of me, and any time I have any form of adverse weather, our recordings suffer. Yeah, but it's still, he's still understandable, so we're trekking on forward. And as for how I'm doing, I'm doing alright. My work today had a Christmas party, and they did a white elephant thing. I did not want to be involved in that, but they fed me, although they gave me turkey in the middle of the day and then expected me to stay awake for the rest of the day, so I don't know what's up yeah, with that. Yeah, that's just, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. So I did not get much done today, but I'll be better tomorrow. So, how are you? Uh, like I said, huge winter storm over the top of us right now. It is currently 19 degrees, which is really fucking cold for this Seattle area, with a lot of snow, which is also unusual for the Seattle area. Mm, unfortunately, we're actually, we were melting today. We've been heavy snow, but today was just above freezing, so enough for the ice to, to melt a bit. <laughs> Yeah, it snows, and then it melts, and then it freezes into a sheet of ice. Yeah, that is what is the case on the top of my girlfriend's car right now, which I'm having to use currently because my car overheated several times, and it's waiting to get looked at now, because I have uh, nothing but bad luck. <laughs> nope, had to went through something similar, had to replace the battery in ours, because it's just like, car, hey car, uh, what'd you give me for Christmas? I didn't get you anything, car. I said, what did you get me for Christmas? Something <laughs> proceeds to die. Like, fuck it, really? Okay, fine. That seems oddly accurate for Eileen. Huh. All right. Yeah. Well, anyway, what are we here talking about? I know, but tell them. Well, first, we have to thank the people that, you know, allow us to be here. Oh, our correct. patrons. Absolutely. Getting excited. I know it's, it's a big episode, but sure. our patrons, these people that give us money, that allow us to continue year to year to year to year 
They are Pam Galley, Marky, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin Bay, Brendan Agnew, John Reynolds, Kit Kenny, Seth Decker, Donald Lucy, Patrick Anderson, Carson Amell, Scott Rubin, Derek Kite, and Peter Cook. Now, if you'd like to join that illustrious legion, make that list a little bit longer, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Geeks with Shield. 25 cents an episode gets you access, early access to all our episodes and keeps us going that much longer. Excellent. Now what are we talking about? <laughs> well, it's that time of year again. Everyone's talking about their favorite movies of the year, and we're no different. We are here to talk about our top ten favorite movies of the year. I hesitate to say best because, well, my list isn't objectively built like that. Yeah, well, the idea of an objective best list is also just nonsense. There's no such thing as true objectivity. At the end of the day, a top ten list is just what. Like, you might have a personal preference where you're like, I think this movie is better made than this, so that's why I put it. But that's still a subjective decision you make. Anyway, just favorites. And our lists are different. And before we get into the actual list, because I, throughout the year, I keep track of every new movie that I see in a little memo in my phone. That way, at the end of the year, my top ten list is already built. I saw 27 films that came out this year. There are some films that came out that I did not get to see that I wish I did, so... They might have made the list, but you won't hear me talk about them. Things like Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, or Top Gun Maverick, or Clerks 3. All films that I wanted to see, but didn't get to for one reason or another. And then, real quick, these 17 films about to describe, or not to, about to list, are ones that I do not have on my list, but did see. So, just so that they're there in order of least liked to most liked, they are Ticket to Paradise, The Adam Project, The Deer King, Bell. The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, Death in the Nile, The Northman, Thor Love and Thunder, Bob's Burgers of the Movie, 3,000 Years of Longing, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Black Adam, One Piece Red, Don't Worry Darling, Strange World, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and the last cut I made to my list, Turning Red. So, there you go. Now we can get to the actual topic. <laughs> well, I'm going to run down my honorable mentions real quick, because this year was interesting, and we'll get into that in... The actual episode. Uh, I only have three honorable mentions this year. We kind of shuffled these around back and forth, back and forth a couple of times. And they are Black Panther, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Turning Red, and Everything Everywhere All at Once. Yeah, Turning Red was the, the last cut I made, and it and my number 10 both made me feel not good, but for very different reasons. The only movies yeah. I yeah, the only movies that I saw this year that I didn't like were Bell, The Deer King, The Adam Project, and Ticket to Paradise. Ticket to Paradise, I was miserable during, but the rest I at least liked. So Let, let's talk about that real quick. I saw, I know, I saw several movies this year I did not like, but as this podcast is largely about bringing positivity in, and because people are doing positive, we are doing worst. Yeah, well, plus I just don't tend to see enough movies to make worse lists, so... Uh, I already do things like, I... I don't know, I forgot most of the movies I really hated till you mentioned a couple. Like, the Chip and Dale's one, I did not enjoy. Uh, Hocus Pocus 2, I did not enjoy. Yeah, but like, if I were making a worse list, I'd have to put The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent on just by nature of where it is on my list of movies. And yeah, I don't want to call that a bad movie. The other reason we stopped doing it is it gets kind of hard to fill out a top ten list when you're not seeking out objectively bad movies. Yeah. It's dumb to put objectively bad movies on the list because you know they're objectively bad. So why do we need to talk about them? Exactly. So while there are things I would love to say about Don't Worry Darling, which is basically a long Black Mirror episode, 
it didn't make the list, so not here to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, and then last things last, this was an interesting list for me because around August, September, I was kind of pissed that I was having trouble filling out my list because I'm like, I, I've seen movies, but none of you really feel like you deserve a place on this list. And then like the end of the year packed it in and made this final cut really hard. I was like, oh, but I really like this, but do I like it more than I like this? And oh, where does this one fit? And yeah. And unlike previous years, we, for some reason, are we can't see each other's lists right now. So they will be complete surprises to each of us. And we'll try because to make I it... want it to be a surprise this year. Yeah, and generally speaking, the way we do this is if someone mentions an ep- a movie that is on the other person's list but higher up, then we'll say so and wait to talk about it then. So. Yep, also, final warning, uh, probably going to get into spoilers on these movies. Oh, cause... this is a spoiler-heavy, like, there's no way to split up non-spoiler and spoiler in something like this, so, sorry, this is a spoiler episode. Yeah, that's just the way it's going to be, folks. Yeah. All right. How about you go first with your number 10? Okay, my number 10. This was the most contentious place of the year for me, is I had a lot of movies circling in and out of the number 10 spot. Okay. And this one was originally held by something else, but I recently rewatched it with my daughter, and it got bumped into number 10, and that is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Which was a movie that I tried to make time to see this last week but didn't get around to it so i'm glad to hear it was good i am surprised i don't like this as much as everyone else does i mean tell tell me about it (laughs) well so first off the stop motion is fucking black magic i don't know how they pulled off some of these shots okay like it's legitimately one of those ones i'm watching it's like how are you doing this because again you just kind of forget this is stop motion and it's over two hours and then you think about the amount of time that went into crafting this and it's fucking incredible uh it's very del toro-esque in that the blue angel is an almost eldritch monster of course um but the big kind of underlying theme of it all is this is set to the rise of fascism in italy oh okay you know that's a whole big thing that's kind of the undercurrent and there's a lot of stuff going on here. The expectations of fathers and sons and the really kind of fucked up nature of fascism, but also very much telling the story of Pinocchio, like all the beats of Pinocchio are there. Mm-hmm. Except for this one is Geppetto's son dies. Okay. And in a drunken grief-fueled haze, he creates, you know, he carves Pinocchio. All right. And the blue fairy comes along and feels bad for him and creates Pinocchio. But I love the little thing of he looks the way he does because Geppetto was drunk when he put him together. <laughs> All right. So that's why there's nails sticking out of his head and parts of his one of his ears isn't finished. And so was your daughter really into it? Is that like? What... Oh, my daughter loved it. Okay. She loves stop motion and she loves anything kind of dark and grim. And it is very dark and grim because like one of the jokes they are not joke. One of the through lines is Pinocchio is the dead boy is the wooden boy with the lit with the dead boy's soul. Mm-hmm. And Pinocchio can never die. Oh, dark. Like he, he dies and he keeps going to the underworld and he meets death who is the sister of the blue fairy. And she's like, well, I can't kill you, but I don't have to send you back right now. 
Side note to the listeners, in the interest of keeping this under two hours, I'm going to try to l- keep us on track for three to four minutes per movie. So, Yeah, uh, why, again, it's a great movie. It's got a lot of good stuff. Again, I'll let other people ramble on about why they love this one so much. My big problem is when you say Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio with the backdrop of fascism, mm-hmm. I'm expecting something, I'm expecting Pan's Labyrinth. Okay. And this is not Pan's Labyrinth. Honestly, I feel like most people will just expect Pan's Labyrinth from Del Toro in general. Yeah. It's really good. And again, it's on my list namely because the fucking stop motion is black magic. Okay. And it's a really solid story. And it's still available on Netflix, right? Yes. All right. Then uh, we're going to go to my number 10. And by the way, I originally had... Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special and Werewolf by Night in my list, but I decided to pull them off because they're I. yeah they're not actually movies; they're specials, yep. and I just decided to not include them. But they they both would have made my top ten had I decided to include them. They so. were both on the list at one point, but I decided to remove them for clarity's sake. Exactly, my number ten is Barbarian, which is a movie I have oh, a hard yeah. time putting on my list, only because I don't like horror movies. And that's kind of actually why Barbarian makes my list, because despite the third act kind of losing track of itself and becoming really cheesy, the first two acts had me some of the most terrified I've ever been watching something. I I was in the theater with Woonvog, and he literally leaned over at one point and said, do you need to leave? Because of how I was just, like, curled up in the seat. So, to anyone who didn't see it, Barbarian was this little horror film about a woman staying in a B&B that is already occupied, and it turns out that there's some stuff going on in in the house that is not good. And even though this is a spoiler episode, I'm still not going to really talk about Barbarian because it's really best experience not knowing anything. So, it's just a fucking terrifying movie that is mostly terrifying not because of like jump scares or anything but because of people going down really dark hallways and the way it's shot and the sound mixing is just it just gets into that lizard brain so well with with nothing on screen and then also twice in the movie it's like hey here's time for a different movie entirely until it isn't it's just surprising as someone who has gone on record not liking this movie I have to give credit where credit is due. This is a technically sound movie in that it is shot incredibly well. It is acted. And all of the pieces are there from a technical standpoint that I get why people like this movie. I do feel it has been overhyped, but I will not say it's bad. Yeah, well, again, that's why I say that I can't not include it when it just affected me so much. Because I've seen plenty of horror movies that make me a little scared or or even a ridiculous like i love halloween halloween's great and i love the halloween sequels but none of them like scare me barbarian actually activated my fight or flight response and i have to give it credit for that oh yeah no this will all become very relevant when i talk about my number nine yeah well i'll take that as time we can move on your number nine because i don't know where barbarian's available right now we're not going to say that for everyone i just happen to know that pinocchio was on netflix so well pinocchio is only available on netflix most of these other ones you can rent anywhere yeah so what's your number nine then uh my number nine is clerks three. Oh, one of the ones that i really wish i'd seen and i just haven't got around to it i did not expect this one to be anywhere on my list when i saw the trailer or when i even started watching it and this is kind of like Barbarian. It's like, you know, all in all, you're just a good movie. You're nothing real special. You're nothing real great. And then the third act broke me. Really? Just, 
Bane v. Batman style broke me. <laughs> okay. I am I am afraid of this movie because it makes me feel things. Really? Hmm. Yes, very strong things. It's like, I don't like you. That's not fair. It's really funny, your particular relationship with Kevin Smith films. <laughs> it, it, it's amazing. I will watch anything the man produces because I don't necessarily like his films but i'm fascinated by him as a director yeah well i remember him talking about clerks 3 a long time ago before it was ever a thing and saying if i made clerks 3 it would be about the making of clerks and i was like that's a good idea so and that's apparently what it is yeah it's very much that it's again it's it's got some great jokes in there uh i love how they keep referencing the fact that he basically already made this movie with zach and mary make a porno yeah (laughs) true that is a running joke throughout this, but the, the basic premise is Randall has a heart attack, and he decides that he wants to make a movie, and that movie is Clerks, and it's getting everyone back together. Oh, and by the way, again, even though I haven't seen it, generally speaking, if Kevin Smith does something set in the View Askewiverse at this point, it's made for people who have seen the View Askewiverse. So... Yeah. You kind of need to see Clerks 1 and 2. This is not a standalone thing, I would assume. Uh, you can and you can't. Like, you do need to see Clerks 2 because this is a direct sequel to Clerks 2 and there's certain plot threads that when it first was introduced, I'm like, oh, I don't like that. But then what they do with it, especially a speech Dante gives at the very end, mm-hmm. is just, oh, that's why you did it. That is... That it's very good. And I had to talk to our friend Chris. I'm like, Chris, why is this movie doing this to me? And he broke it down like in 30 seconds. I'm like, holy fuck, yeah. The reason this movie in the third act and kind of the whole theme of the movie is this is the most basic, non-toxic view of male friendship and how one guy can only express his feelings for his friend on a deathbed. Mm Mm-hmm. And just the welling of emotions and, you know, this friendship and the importance of male friendship and everything that kind of comes together. And I'm like, oh, shit, yeah, that's exactly what that is. This is, you know, character talking to his friend and saying all these things he's never been able to say to his friend until this literal exact moment and the way he chooses to show it to him. Cool. I mean, I'm a sucker for friendship and stories. And oh, it's going to break you, too. I right? bet you. Based on what you just described, I'm sure it will. Like, the, the emotional reaction I got of this, like, okay. Because I don't know how Kevin Smith has said, he said, you know, Clerks 3 is my revenge for all the people that laughed at me when I cry at movies. I got you all balling in the third act. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you son of a bitch, you really do. Fuck. Yeah, Kevin Smith's a fun guy. I like watching his interviews. And oh, yeah, stuff. no, he's really fun. But again, this is just, it's a good, solid comedy movie that really gets the place because that third act and how this all comes together and pays off is so, it's an emotional gut punch, the likes of which I have not felt this year. All right, well, my number nine, and we can talk about this very quickly, is Black Panther Wakanda Forever because we already did like a half hour recording talking about it. So, it's up on the Patreon. Yeah. So to quickly summarize, it's probably the objectively best movie of Marvel Phase 4. Its only weakness is that it spends too much time with Martin Freeman, but everything else and everyone else is firing on basically all cylinders. Namor's great. Shuri's great. Angela Bassett's great. I don't know what else to tell you. Like, <laughs> if you want to hear our deep dive go listen to that one (laughs) yeah this one was in my list at multiple points and kind of fell out because i'm still not sure how i feel about it 
like my overall thoughts, I'm gonna have to give it another viewing and kind of dwell on it. Well, because it's not my it's not my favorite film of Phase Four. It's not even my favorite like thing of like I like Shang Chi, Werewolf by Night, both more, but. Yeah. They, you know, I'm not counting Werewolf by Night and Shang-Chi didn't come out this year. So, and I think Black Panther Wakanda Forever is a better movie than those things. But again, personal preference is a thing and recognizing your, your inclinations is important. Uh, my, my list very much this year was emotion based and like the gut feel I got of it. And I think because I was still processing Wakanda Forever, I didn't know where it kind of fell in the greater, you know, ranking of how did this movie make me feel? Yeah. Well, also, it's a movie that I feel like if you've lost a family member, particularly a sibling, and particularly a parent, I think it's going to specifically speak to you. It it didn't... I have not lost a sibling or a parent, so I feel like that didn't register with me, even though I could see it objectively. So I'm not sure how to gauge that, you know? Yeah, nothing like that. I think that it it came close, but the Clerks 3 had the secret the blend a little bit stronger to hit me all right your number eight uh my number eight is a movie that no one seems to be talking about but i enjoyed the hell out of it and that's the duel the duel isn't that the adam driver no that's the last duel this is the karen gillen versus karen gillen oh i remember seeing like i think a trailer for it but yeah kind of flew under the radar okay what's it about uh this is set in a near future where if you have a terminal disease, you can have a clone made of yourself that will live on for your loved ones after you die. And yeah. Karen Gillan has terminal cancer, so she agrees to get herself cloned so that she can, you know, live on after she dies. And then turns out, oops, that was a misdiagnosis. But the rules of the society dictate of, well, now there has to be a fight to the death between you and your clone. And you have one year to prepare. Uh, okay, so this is kind of like the island in reverse? <laughs> kind of, in that it's it's got a little bit of Shaun of the Dead in there in, you know, realizing that she's been living her life just going through the motions. Mm-hmm. And she's not really happy. And she kind of comes to, you know, hate her clone because well, everyone likes her clone better and her clone is having a better life. And that's kind of the realization of she hates herself. Mm-hmm. But then she radically reinvents herself and learns all these new skills as she, you know, trains to become a serious, you know, a trained killer. And then the clone, and it's got this whole weird thing and this great ending, which I don't want to spoil, but I kind of want to talk about, where the ending is a bit anticlimactic. Okay. But the implication is really, again, it's the implications of the ending. It's the movie movie being true to itself, you know? Like, the whole ideas of this movie pay off in the ending in that, no, you don't get the big epic duel between the two of them. Mm -hmm. But if you've been paying attention to where this movie's going, the ending, like, oh, fuck, yeah, no, that makes total sense. I should have seen that coming. Okay, yeah, it definitely sounds like something that I would like, because I like, I mean, again, that sounds like a Black Mirror episode. It's would... very Black Mirror-ish, and again, I gotta give uh, Gillian credit because she's kind of playing two versions of herself, and the original one is kind of this dour, depressed, kind of blasé person, and her clone is kind of this wide-eyed, oh, the world is new, I'm a better version of you. There's also the fact that, and, you know, it's not that important, but, you know, Karen Gillan is basically my top-tier Hollywood crush, so I'll watch, like, anything with her in it, really. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's just, you know, it, it's a great movie, and it's well cast. Okay, my number eight is Nope. <laughs> I just like saying that. I, I, I remember when I saw this movie, I literally tweeted, just saw Nope, and, yep, 
and that's probably the tweet I'm most proud of, even though it's not original. I just I liked it. But nope for anyone who missed it was the um, Peel's new movie, the guy behind Get Out and Us, and where in Get Out he was going for like psychological thriller, Stepford Wivesy kind of play on, and for Us he was going for doppelganger, invasion of the body snatchers kind of thing. In Nope he's going for the the thing I constantly hear people compare it to is is Jaws UFO. UFO Jaws. Yeah. So, and that's really accurate. The the movie does things with the sky and clouds that made it so that when I left the theater, I was like, I am super happy there are no clouds right now. <laughs> so, it's, it's I not... liked Nope, but I'm not sure I liked Nope. I, I get... I listen to a few people talk about it, and I feel like there's a lot of stuff under the hood that I don't necessarily get. Like, apparently the movie is a big homage to the people behind the scenes of filmmaking yeah. process. And that's really cool. I like that a lot on concept, even if I didn't get it in in the moment. I think that visually it's stunning, the fact that they can basically have really terrifying horror-ish kind of scenes in broad daylight. And again, this movie didn't scare me, not in the way Barbarian did at all, but it was just really cool to look at. And the fact that a lot of the best scenes happen in broad daylight and still work which is something really hard to do, Pacific Rim 2. <laughs> like, it's just impressive. So, I think it's a little bit too long. I could see that. And, and the, the third act kind of starts twice. Yeah, and for anyone who doesn't actually know the premise, because I know people who didn't see it, it's about essentially a UFO kind of thing happening to a ranch where some people who are horse wranglers for Hollywood stuff start trying to figure out what the ufo is and what it is is itself a swerve but a swerve that makes a lot of sense and a swerve that results in at least one scene in the middle of the movie involving compression that was very uncomfortable oh that's horrifying that's like the most fucked up shit like that whole oh boy yeah it's also very eldritch i feel like because yeah. peel had just got off of what lovecraft county or whatever it's called and I, I don't think he did Lovecraft Country, did he? I thought he was involved with it. I could be wrong, though. But it feels like something similar. Yeah, he, produced it. he produces a lot of stuff. Yeah, but my point is that I felt like he was channeling some Lovecraft stuff in this. Especially because the movie never really explains what's going on, and that's okay. Well, hey, that's a Peel movie. There's always, he loves layering in subtext and metaphor. And this one, he kind of is frustrating in how he talked about it. Like, it's got all sorts of subtext and metaphor, but also there's none. It's just a straight on-the-face movie. And it's like, okay, come on, pick, pick a direction. Like, the most obvious one is it's kind of a metaphor for how Hollywood uses and abuses and chews people up and spits them out again. Well, not just people, but also tragedy. A big thing yeah. going on there is Hollywood's commercialization of tragedy. I mean, literally yeah, one like of the... the most on-the-face thing. Yeah, one of the main, not villains, but obstacle characters is literally commercializing their past tragedy and current tragedies. And then he gets what's coming to him. So. Yeah, again... I, a lot I liked about this. This one kind of circled the list a couple times, but I couldn't come down on, do I like this or not? Yeah, that's fair. But, much like Smith, I will watch everything this man does because he's a fascinating director, and he always does something interesting. Yeah. Honestly, I felt like I should like Note more, but almost like I wasn't 
intelligent enough to get it, which is the i guess anti-pretentious i don't know i do know that the jaws stuff is super obvious and super effective yeah. so i love that <laughs> I, I said i just think that third act goes on a bit too long probably anyway your number seven uh my number seven is dr strange and the multiverse of madness which didn't make my cut but i love me a sam raimi film and i wish it did make my cut so i keep flip-flopping back and forth on this one because on the one hand it's like did i really like it and i think about all like the cool sam raimi touches and the scarlet witch stuff that was downright terrifying points and all the stuff they got away like oh yeah i do like that but then i kind of think about stuff i don't like like oh maybe i don't like that well it's funny because you and i have basically come down the side of marvel fatigue isn't a real thing and people bitching about marvel are more annoying than anything and while I still believe that, this is a movie that is, to me, the example of, okay, the stuff that is mostly Marvel-ish is so overshadowed in my memory by the stuff that just feels like a Sam Raimi movie. So, Yeah, that's kind of where I came down. Like, no, all the visual cues and stuff is awesome. I enjoyed the hell out of that when I was in the movie theaters, and it's still a fun movie. And this is Doctor Strange being the most Doctor Strange we've seen him yet. True. There's a there's a fight scene in the middle involving music that is like this is what a Doctor Strange fight scene should be. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of what I think. It's like you're just getting caught up in the America Chavez of it all because everything outside of that is fucking gorgeous, wonderful Sam Raimi purity. Yeah. <laughs> it's the MCU bolt-on stuff, which they've been really good about hiding up to this point that became very obvious this phase. That you're like, all right, listen, I know you're setting these characters up, but this is not an organic edition. Yeah, I mean, he literally, at, at two points in the film, turns two of the main characters essentially into deadites. He does it to Scarlet Witch when she's chasing some people, and he does it to Doctor Strange when he possesses his own corpse from an alternate universe. It's amazing. <laughs> and it looks good. Like... I could remove the dialogue and watch this as a silent film and go, fuck, yeah, look at this. This is awesome. This is cool. Literally, this is bright and colorful. Literally, the only like thing that really gets in my craw is that this is the multiverse of madness, and they yeah. hinted at multiverse stuff. Like They literally go through a universe where they're made of paint at one point, but when it comes right down to it, the actual universes that they spend time in are just essentially our universe, but oh, the lights are opposite colors instead of red and green for stop and go or whatever like that's it it's like yeah. come on you could do better than that so this is a flawed movie but i think about how much fun i had watching it and again this year's list is comprised of uh, gut reactions like no i had a lot of fun with multiverse of madness that deserves a spot on my list so sir i'm not going to argue against it because I, I i enjoyed it and it was very close to making my list so i also think that uh, elizabeth olsen like i love wandavision a lot I feel like after watching Multiverse of Madness, we have woefully underrated her. <laughs> yep. So. Now, everyone that bitches is like, I don't know where her story was. I feel like this isn't the continuation of uh, WandaVision. They weren't like, paying attention to WandaVision then. They weren't paying attention then. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, my number seven, I know, is a movie that Ulrich didn't actually like, so let's not have an argument about it, is The Batman. Robert Pattinson's Batman. Ah. So... Bat or er, Ulrich is a known he has known issues with Batman in general, so I don't blame him for not being a particular fan of this. I'm usually not a fan of more kind of gritty superhero movies. I I actually kind of have come to detest 
at least two out of three of the Nolan Batmans, and even yeah. The Dark Knight is, outside of Heath Ledger's performance, I really don't like much of that movie now that I go back and watch yeah. it. Yeah, I was like, that's one rewatch away from going, wait a second, you're not good either. Yeah, but... The thing about Matt Reeves' Batman that works for me is I've read a number of Batman's solo noir comics, and I'm a huge fan of noir movies in general, and it felt like Matt Reeves was specifically going for noir movie with Batman, and that works really well for me. And Pattinson's performance is great. The The real weakness of it is Riddler. Almost everything about Riddler doesn't work, except for the fact that it's a basic giant send-up of toxic fans. That I kind of love. Yep. But but besides that, I love Riddler as a character in the comics and in the animations and whatnot, and I felt like they didn't really understand him here. No offense to the actor who is doing what he's supposed to be doing just fine. But anyway, I think Pattinson looks great in the suit. I think the action scenes look great. I think Colin Farrell is a surprisingly amazing penguin. I... I love the noir everything about it. I think Gotham looks great, in, but in a way that doesn't feel like over... Like, it definitely feels less real than Nolan's Gotham, which basically just felt like New York. This feels like actually Gotham to me in real in reality, and so that, that really works for me. I like that it's, again, a young Batman, so he makes mistakes. He makes mistakes based on privilege, which is kind of neat to see, since we don't... I feel like that doesn't happen enough to billionaire rich kid. So yeah. and I feel like Andy Serkis's Alfred could have done more. So again, this is a movie that, like, my downsides are really, like, they could have done this better, they could have done this better, but there's a lot of stuff I like, and I couldn't help feeling like, well, this is one of the better best Batman movies. I still like Michael Keaton's Batman most, but this feels like... Even that didn't feel like Batman the character as much. That felt just like a good movie that was playing at Batman. This feels the yeah. most like Batman the character to me. So, All the pieces are there for me. Like, when I look at this in a big, you know, dissected, like, oh yeah, no, I love Matt Reeves. He's a great director. Pattinson doing a good job as Batman. The... I'm not so much a fan of the aesthetic, but it works. But this is such a long, dull, rehashed concept movie. And you know, on I, paper... I tried, I tried so damn hard. On paper, I agree with you. And remember, I'm the person that if a movie is longer than 90 minutes, I start feeling they need to justify themselves to me. Which is why I was amazed that I came out of the Batman being like, it was... how? It's over already? Like, that almost never happens to oh, me. No, I was so. the opposite, like, oh my god, it's still going... Yeah, I, and I'm not begrudging you. I'm just saying that in my personal experience, I had the opposite feeling, and that opposite feeling almost never happens to me. Even movies I like, I'm usually like, this is taking a while, whereas I did not feel that in the Batman at all. I was like, oh, we're done? Oh, okay. <laughs> Here's the thing it made me realize. It made me realize two things. One, Batman fans have set the bar too low for themselves. Okay. And two, Mask of the Phantasm is the only good Batman movie. Uh, Under the Red Hood, please. I haven't seen Under the Red Hood, so I can't speak to its quality. Yeah, I'm still of the opinion that Under the Red Hood is the best Batman movie, period. But it's like, you guys, I mean, Superman fans, at least you have a good Superman movie. I do not think there has been a good Batman movie. And I'll disagree with you. I think there have been at least four good Batman movies, two of which were live action. So, uh, Maybe great, but I mean, like, and again, I gotta admit my Conroy bias and the yes. media I consume. No matter what, but... even though I say Robert Pattinson is the first live-action actor to really feel like Batman to me in a lot of ways, Kevin Conroy is still, just is, 
Batman, and we lost yeah. him this year, and it's it's fucking a huge tragedy because Kevin Conroy is Batman. So yeah, always will be, and I guess I don't know. I wanted to like this movie. I wanted to be wrong about this movie, but it's just oh damn no. Yeah, and I will not begrudge you. I've used I've said that like three times now. So why don't we move on to your number six? Uh, my number six, speaking of dark, dour, and too damn long, is All Quiet on the Western Front. I have not even heard of that, but it sounds like a war movie, and I generally avoid those like the plague. So It is a remake of a remake of an adaptation of one of the greatest anti-war books ever produced. Really? Yep. It tells the story of a young German boy fighting on the Western Front during World War One. World War One. Oh, all right. And this is a long, dour, soul-breaking slog of a movie, and I love every second of it. I, I know nothing about it, so I'm just going to leave the next three minutes to you. So basically it opens with this kid and all his buddies signing up to Joe fighting the war and lying about their age and marching off singing, you know, happy marching songs. And then half of them being brutally murdered. Oh. And going, welcome to the front, boys. It's a cold, sloggy, miserable adventure. And it basically follows him through the war. And it's got this nice little interlude where it's kind of like, oh, no, there was, you know, nice moments. And, you know, they were getting around and then back to the horrible mind-grinding slog with an incredibly depressing ending that just kind of holds a big sign up and says this was all futile and stupid. Isn't that kind of what... What was that movie a few years ago that was all one take? Like 1916 or... 1917. Yes. And one of the reasons I I still do not like 1917 is 1917 was so clinical Mm -hmm. and clean in its depiction of the war. And this one is, it's, it's showing the bodies, it's showing the trenches, it's showing the rats, it's showing the muck, it's showing the grime. It literally sticks you in this hellhole of an experience and goes, this is not something to be admired. This is not something you want to have to do. Mm. Where 1917 played at that, but because it just followed these two soldiers, it never got the grinding boredom. And okay. It never felt like you were following the soldiers in life. Because how this movie ends, and the biggest, you know, again, this is an anti-war movie that was written by a World War One vet before World War Two. that's like, no, we should never go to war again. This is the kind of horrible stuff I experienced, is literally the armistice has been declared, and there are not going to be any more war. And the German commander goes, nope, fuck that, I want one final raid, orders his army into the French, you know, trenches, where, you know, they commit all sorts of war crimes and are horribly slaughtered before the war is over and everyone goes, okay, time to go home as this poor kid, you know, is cowering in a trench. Sad. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. That's, yeah. Yeah, no. It is incredibly sad and dour, but it's also incredibly shot because, again, you feel like you're there. It never feels like you were on a stage. It literally feels like you were in these horrible, muddy, water-filled trenches. And when the tanks come rumbling across and the soldiers are panicking, you're panicking because you are so immersed in this. It's like, oh, fuck. And World War One kind of gets ignored largely because it is a very dour, 
horrible war with you can't really make big heroic moments out of it well it's also the war that there is not really as easily defined good guys and bad guys yeah we can say the germans are the bad guys but when you really look at the meaning behind world war one everyone was the bad guy yeah and that's the story it's just this one kid who got suckered into the idea of going and dying for the glory of his country and watching his friends kind of slowly die in these horrible trenches. And if it wasn't for the second act, you know, whimsy of them just kind of hanging out, stealing geese, chasing girls, it would be just a dour all the way through. But because it gives you this little bit of uplift in the middle, you're like, oh, yeah, no, there was this moment before plunging you back in the dirt and the grime. Oh, well. It's, it's an incredible movie, but not an easy watch. Okay. So my number six... I see most of the films in theaters. I've got Regal Unlimited. I'm not advertising for that. It's just, it's easy for me. But I try to make it worth its, and yes, that is a dog behind me if we can't cut it out. So sorry. But I try to make my Regal Unlimited worthwhile and go to the films every Sunday. I obviously don't make it because I didn't see 50 plus movies this year. But this film is one that I most wish I could have seen on a big screen and didn't, which is Prey. We were robbed. Absolutely. This movie deserves a big screen release and did not get it for some reason. The only reason I can think of, and this is the really cynical part of my brain, is that the movie has an all Native American cast and the production studio didn't believe that that would sell for some reason. Uh, it's it's both better and worse than that. Yeah, I, I mean, yes, the, the last Predator movie is... also was terrible, but... Oh well, no, it's not even that complicated. The reason is... Due to pre-existing contracts, because this is a Fox holdover, if it got released to studios, it had to go to HBO Max before it could go to Hulu or Disney+. Plus. So it got screwed over by rights litigation stuff. All of the stuff that got dumped on Hulu that was a Fox property is that reason. Okay. We got to add so many movies because the big companies didn't want to share. So Prey, to actually talk about the movie for a second, is the Nick's Predator movie. And if we look at the Predator movies and not count Alien vs. Predator because it's a whole different conversation, the Predator movies are kind of half and half. The first Predator movie is fucking amazing and still one of the best yep. like movies ever. The second Predator movie is bad, but bad in a fun way. Like, it's, it's kind of dumb fun. Then Predators is pretty solid, but kind of forgettable, other than a few scenes, like with this, the Samurai Yakuza dude. It's got some good ideas. Yeah, and then The Predator is just flat-out bad, which is amazing because Shane Black was, like, the main guy behind it. I don't understand how he went so wrong with The Predator. He made Iron Man 3. We're not going to talk about that. Anyway, (laughs) Prey takes things back to way basics. Instead of having weird Predator mythology, which is what The Predator was trying to do, and even Predators to a degree, it's just, hey, there's this Predator. He shows up... In the in a, the United States, before it was the United States, back during colonial times, he's by himself. He has never been here before. It, it impl- it's implied that he doesn't really know what the planet is. And he runs into a native tribe as well as some French fur trappers. And this one woman decides that she's going to hunt him. That's that's all. The movie is, is really simple. It's back to basics and it's exactly what all predator movies should be just stick the predator in some period piece so we can watch how it interacts with said period piece so in this case watching i don't know what tribe they are specifically but they 
I think they're Lakota because... No, they're Comanche, because there's the Comanche dub. Okay, well, point is, watching the Predator interact with that is awesome. And also, there's this whole sequence at the end where the Predator goes on this murder spree of French uh, fur trappers, and the movie does very little, but just enough to make you hate them. So... It's great. The Predator looks great. Mm -hmm. His sequence of... Basically, you can tell the Predator's thought process is, alright, the first creature I found was a rabbit, and I watched that get killed by a snake. I watched, I followed that snake and watched it get killed by a coyote, and then I followed that coyote and watched it get killed by... Like, he just... He follows, and he's like, alright, a bear. I'm gonna kill that. <laughs> so... And you can just tell what the Predator is thinking without it ever uttering any words. It's really neat. And, of course, the main actress, the first like, main lady to fight a Predator, despite the fact that the Predator's main comparison alien started off with a female. Whatever. She kicks ass. Everything she does is awesome. <laughs> this is on my list. I will speak to it when its time comes. Okay, then I'm gonna stop now and move on to your number five. Uh, my number five is what I was very excited for, and then I saw it, and I'm like, that was good. And that is The Woman King. Oh, I remember you being super excited for that, and yeah, I didn't get to see it, so... It's it's good. I was kind of put off because there was a little bit of public outcry because the tribe this is depicting was heavily involved in the slave trade. Mm, okay. And then the movie puts that front and center and addresses that, like, right out the gates. Like, yeah, we've gotten rich off doing the slave trade and selling our own people, but it's fucked up and we shouldn't do that anymore and kind of weighing, arguing back and forth the idea of should they or shouldn't they. Okay. But at the same time, so the basic premise of the movie is it follows this tribe in Africa who are renowned for having an all-female warrior elite class that served their king. Yes. And the king of this tribe is on the verge of war with another tribe over the issue of slave trading. Mm -hmm. it's like well we're not going to really do this anymore we've done this long enough and this other tribe's like well then fuck you we'll side with the Europeans and we will you know sell you to them and that's the central premise and that's great all that stuff works uh, give me one second I want to look up the main actress's real name so I can give her credit I remember seeing her in other stuff I don't remember what though she's Amanda Waller oh oh Amanda Waller okay uh, Viola Davis. Viola Davis. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt bad. I, okay, she is doing a fucking incredible job being the leader of this all-women warrior thing, warrior group that's, you know, struggling with her own things, has very has a very own dark past. And the, the subplot of it is, you know, a new warrior joining the group and kind of her going through the process. And... Honestly, she's the part that this movie, reason this movie sits lower on my list than it otherwise would. Mm -hmm. Because the B plot is just bad. Okay. I mean, she flip flops back and forth of, well, she very much wants to be here and she's very honored to be part of this, but then she discovers a boy. Oh, nah. Yeah, and it's like, okay, listen, you have spent the entire movie building up these badass warrior women and Viola Davis as this insane warrior queen why are you introducing a love plot to this that sounds and, like hollywood meddling yeah <laughs> yeah but it shot incredibly well the action is really cool this is the kind of movie i've been begging for in a big historical epic i'm glad to hear you got it then 
I wish it had been allowed to be a full R. Mm. Because... That does feel like a restriction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, one of the characters, her signature finishing move is she has metal spikes on two of her fingertips, and she gouges out the eyes of her enemies. Oh, okay. But because it's PG-13, we only get that once. Okay. Unfortunate. And it's like, come on. Again, with a little bit of refocusing and just focusing on Viola Davis as the main character and her struggles and kind of the position she's in, this would have been like number two, number three. All right. My number. But all that said, this is still a fun, cool action movie in a time, in a, just a genre we aren't really getting. Excellent. My number five is a movie that some critics put on their list last year because it technically came out for them at the end of next year, but it wasn't released for us non-critics until like february or something which is cyrano now i wish i could just say peter dinklage as cyrano de bergerac and that be all because if you know who peter dinklage is and you know what cyrano de bergerac is that's enough but apparently a lot of people don't know what cyrano de bergerac is which makes me hurt inside hey listen we are barely funding our education systems as is. So Cyrano de Bergerac is a classic, absolutely classic, uh, I believe French story. I know it's about a French soldier. I think it's originally French. Uh, named Cyrano de Bergerac, who in the premise is very simple. Cyrano is the coolest guy ever. Like, period. He's a great soldier. He's extremely intelligent. He's charming, charismatic. He's a writer. He's just... Everyone loves him. But he has some physical deformity in the original story in a lot of the plays it's a giant nose and while basically everyone else is like yeah so what you're the coolest guy ever cyrano has self-confidence issues because of it and what this translates to in the course of the story is that he falls in love with this girl who he's been friends with for a long time since childhood even and, and but he can't bring himself to tell her that he's in love with her because of his shame, his physical deformity. She falls in love, quote-unquote, with some pretty boy soldier who has rocks for brains, but is a decent guy altogether. And so Cyrano, in order to get kind of a vicarious boost, he starts feeding the soldier love poetry to read to her. And of course, she is sapiosexual. Like, she finds she's attracted to the soldier because he's attractive, but she only really gets to know him when he starts reading Cyrano's poetry. And the movie, the, the story goes through some twists and turns and whatnot, but what's important is that that is the main thrust of it, and I'm not going to spoil how the ending goes, because there's been a lot of adaptations, uh, one of the famous ones was Steve Martin's Roxanne, but a lot of the adaptations don't adapt the ending the, the way the original story does, or at least the way this movie does, and I didn't see that coming, even though I'm a fan of Cerno Bergerac, because I mostly knew it secondhand, but, so the ending's great, it's kind of a musical. There's musical bits in it, but mostly this is a tour de force for Peter Dinklage, just being awesome. And of course, if the idea of coolest guy ever with a physical deformity that he is personally shamed of, even though everyone else like thinks he's awesome, and you don't get what they're going for with Peter Dinklage, even though they never have to say it, I, I don't know what to tell you, man, but it, it works perfectly. So, I have no commentary on this film. Yeah, well... Anyway, Cyrano de Bergerac, Peter Dinklage, fucking worth your time. All right. Uh, 
my number four is one that in the future I may come to regret placing here, but I'm still riding the high off it. And that is Day Shift. Oh, Day Shift. The uh, Jimmy Fox, basically a spiritual successor to Daybreakers, is how you define it to me. Yep. He's a vampire hunter in L.A. with a little bit of John Wick mixed in. And isn't part of the idea that he's kind of down on his luck and he, you know, it's it's a job, he gets paid for like vampire yeah, teeth or no, something? that's the whole thing is there's a union that oversees all the vampire hunting, but he has to do some illegal vampire hunting on the side because he's trying to put his girl into a nice school. All right. That's 90% of the movie. The last 10% is, you know, oh, there's a new super big bad vampire coming in. He has to kill her. But most of the movie is Jamie Foxx doing hits on vampires with really cool over-choreographed fight scenes and some of the just the dumbest, funnest action I've seen in a while. I mean, as someone who... Uh, Django Unchained is probably my second favorite Tarantino film, so seeing Jamie Foxx do badass killing stuff is always good. Yeah, this is just a straight-up meat-and-potatoes action flick, but with vampires. And I was having... It's it's fun. It knows it's stupid, and it kind of leans into that stupid. It's 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 John Wick without all the gravitas that John Wick tries to attach to itself. Which is funny, because John Wick did that, I think, really well in the first movie. Now, admittedly, I've not seen any of the sequels, but I have been told a lot about them. And it feels like it gets kind of hard to swallow after by the third movie so <laughs> the problem with john wick is it it presents itself as very dark and dour mm-hmm. and then wants to back the dumb truck of lore up to it like no this doesn't work with what you're establishing this one the only part that doesn't you know track is why are they have to keep this secret yeah because the way you told me about it is that it seems like there's no reason why it wouldn't be just common knowledge that vampires Yeah, exist. it's the only part that doesn't make any sense. Like, the whole movie, everyone thinks he's a pool cleaner, but that's just his cover to hunt vampires. Hmm. And I didn't even realize that it was a secret. I just thought, you know, he did that to hide from the vampires, because, no, they're, oh, of course they're going to trust the pool cleaner, because they can't clean their own pools during the day. But Snoop Dogg is in this as the head of the vampire hunting union, <laughs> and he's just having fun being you know an old cowboy huh all right because this movie also very much leans into it almost wants to be a western but yeah no this is the spiritual successor to daybreakers there is a chase that is countercut to mario kart <laughs> pure dumb fun and it made me so happy and i loved the hell out of it it's just it just, again it hit all the boxes it's funny, because my number four I can describe very similarly, which was Bullet Train. Bullet Train was a film, when the trailer first came out, I saw it, and my first thought was literally, that looks like exactly the kind of thing that I think movie theaters are made for. Like, not necessarily a great film, but kind of a perfect encapsulation of, I'm going to go get popcorn and watch something awesome. So Bullet Train is apparently an adaptation of a, I think, a Korean comic. I don't know. I don't know what the comic is. I just know that the text of this movie is that Brad Pitt is a, I don't know if assassin is really the right word. He seems like he might just be a fix-it guy in general. He works for some agency, and he's kind of on a hippie peace trip, but he's gives gets given a job, go on this train, get this case. But of course, there are a bunch of other people on the train who also want the case, including a pair of other, I guess, assassins with 
I forgot what their nicknames are. Their nicknames are like fruits or something like that, like tangerine. I, I don't remember exactly, but they're great and they're wonderful. And this is the most Guy Ritchie movie that Guy Ritchie didn't make. I got. It's American Guy Ritchie is what it sounds like. Yeah. Oh no it it felt very much like like watching Snatch, but just in high speed because there's a lot of you know kind of John Wick style fighting. Or actually, actually, more like Jackie Chan, even, when I think about it. Because, like, when Brad Pitt's character gets in fights with people, he's usually trying to not fight them and, like, trying to... St- so, yeah, it has a very Jackie Chan energy, and I didn't realize that until just now. So, but it's hilarious. It actually has some deep kind of dramatic moments with certain other characters uh, that Brad Pitt just has to kind of deal with. It has not twists, necessarily, but, like, kind of just curves to the story that... I didn't see coming, although you probably could see coming if you're paying attention pretty easily. But it's a super fun movie with a killer soundtrack, crazy visuals. They're on a bullet train, like, while they're just fighting over this briefcase. And it ends in insanity in a way I really love, but it's it's also just super clever. Like I said, it, it's, it's dialogued like a Guy Ritchie film, and that's the highest compliment I can give it, so... It's on my list to watch because, again, you've spoken so fondly of it, and the trailer made it look like, that seems like fun. I'll watch that, because I'm always down for a movie that's fun. Yeah, fun is the key word. The movie isn't trying to really be anything other than just capital F, fun. And sometimes that's exactly what I go to the movies for. All right, well, speaking of capital F, fun, my number three is Prey, Meat and Potatoes Predator. I could not ask for anything more. As I already talked about it in my number six, I'll just give the floor to you. This is going back to basics, and it's the first Predator movie all over again. We're doing this, again, we're doing all of this character work and setting up these characters and kind of hinting at the Predator before finally ending on the big epic Predator showdown. And like all good Predator movies before, it made a new Predator and it gave him new toys, including a Predator shield, which I had never thought of before. But like, oh, that's fucking cool. But the thing it did that a lot of other Predator movies have kind of done, Predator 2 hasn't aged so well in this regard. It gives us a scene where the Predator gets to go all out on people that were allowed to hate and be despicable. <laughs> yep. And it's like, oh, look at him doing that. Oh, look at him doing that. Oh, look at him doing that. There's a sequence that's in the trailer, and I don't... Even though I knew it was coming, I still felt the adrenaline pump where someone tries to, like, hit the Predator with an axe. He blocks it with a shield, pulls the axe out of, like, the tree that he had deflected into, spins it around in his hand, and then stabs them with it. It's fucking awesome. Yeah, no, at one point a bear trap gets used... No, this is a great meat and potatoes movie, and it inverts the action hero trope in what we, you know, we're expecting. And there was so much endless douchebag wailing and gnashing of teeth. A girl can't beat a predator. Yeah, fuck off. Yeah, which of course they make the text of the movie, and that the the girl's literal thing is she wants to be a hunter, and none of her tribe believe that she can do it, despite the fact that she's a badass. So yeah, no, this proves what predator should be. Predator fights an iconic warrior in an iconic setting apparently i have i have looked up some behind the scenes stuff and they were basing this off of a very specific set of predator comics which implies and again this is just an implication that the next one if they make another one which the director said he's he's down for would be predator versus pirates yeah the 1615 they've played around with 
Exactly. And I'm going to say, I'm here. I'm down for Predator versus Pirates. I want Predator versus Vikings. I want Predator versus Samurai. I want Predator versus Spartans. Just, just put them in there, man. Again, it really, and the, the thing this one happened, you can do it on the cheap. This is just find a good filming location and have at it. Don't, I, I'm, I'm a guy that typically loves lore, but Predator and Alien are both those franchises of the more they add, the less good it becomes. Yeah, like I'm wrong, I love the Yautja, which by the way, if you don't know, is the name of the species that the Predator are, and there's a lot of yep. good comic lore about them. The movies don't need it. At all. No, just just keep it simple and keep like, it's so much more fun. Like when we were kids trying to figure out what the fuck these things were and what the fuck they wanted. Yeah. And when you start adding hierarchies and hard sense, like, oh no, this was actually way more fun when I kind of guessed at what their deal was. Yeah. Anyway, my number three is a film that is hard for me to talk about only because if you're into these kind of movies, you've definitely already seen it and you don't need me to recommend it and if you're not in these kind of movies no matter what i say you're not going to go see it which is the french dispatch the new wes anderson movie oh no fucking wes anderson exactly my arch nemesis you are either into wes anderson's thing or you're not and if you're not there's nothing i can say to to dissuade you and if you are you already saw this movie so i have a hard time talking about it like I love Wes Anderson, except for The Life Aquatic, which bored the fuck out of me. No offense uh, to anyone who likes that movie. It, I don't... It just is dull. But The French Dispatch feels, anyway... Like, I, I think, literally, I watched it, and then I turned to Woonvog, because I watched Predator movies with Woonvog, and I said, that felt like he was making every use of the strength of filmmaking as a medium. The, the plot of The French Dispatch is that Bill Murray, because Bill Murray's in all of them, all of the Wes Anderson movies, is a editor for a paper in some small town in middle America called The French Dispatch. Called that because they're supposed to be bringing, like, the world's information to this town. He, it's about the last issue of the paper that he oversees. And every, the movie is just a set of vignettes, and each vignette is one of the stories in the paper. Like, the opening one is Owen Wilson, who's also in a bunch of uh, Wes Anderson stuff for some reason, just doing a almost a slam poem about the city that is why it's both good and bad, but why it's good and bad involves things like the number of bodies they found in the river, and <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to explain without seeing it. Then there's another vignette that is Benicio Del Toro as this prisoner painter who falls in love with his guard, who strips naked so that he can paint her and then he's discovered by adrian brody who's this fucking insane like art critic and then they have a thing happen between them that i'm not gonna spoil but it's hilarious and i don't know it again it it's it's wes anderson it's not wes anderson's best work i'd say it's not better than royal ten bombs it's not better than moonrise kingdom and it's not better than grand budapest hotel but i put it roughly similar to grand budapest hotel so Ulrich, it seems, is not a Wes Anderson fan, which does not surprise me at all. His style is very not in Ulrich's wheelhouse, and so I would not tell Ulrich to see it. But if you like anything else Wes Anderson has done, French Dispatch is worthwhile. Now, now we've talked about it. Wes Anderson is the tinfoil on a filling for me. Just everything about him repels me. Yeah, and that's fine. Like, Wes Anderson is so idiosyncratic that I, even though I love his work... 
I never hold it against someone who hates his work. Because he's very much like, this is my style, it's very specific, and if you don't like it, you're not going to like what I do. (laughs) It's just fascinating because I've never encountered any other director that I have this reaction to, but I've tried. It's like, oh, God, no, this hurts my brain. Fuck you, horror, stop! Yeah. So, personally, I still think Grand Budapest Hotel is the best one for a new person to watch, but French Dispatch is very good. There you go. Alright, uh, my number two, not gonna surprise anyone here, is Hellraiser. Which I did not see, but I'm surprised it's so high on your list. Fuck! Is this a good movie? I'm glad to hear it, considering that Hellraiser is one of those, is one of the classic horror franchises that is probably the most uneven. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, Hellraiser's bad. Like, just bad. Uh, Clive Barker, if I remember correctly, is the guy behind yep. Hellraiser, and that first Hellraiser film is is good, but in a really uncomfortable, gross, over-the-top kind of way. It's the point, but... That's, that's Clive Barker in a nutshell, is horny and uncomfortable. Anyone who listens to us knows that we're fans of Warhammer and Warhammer 40K. If you know what that is and you know the Dark Elves or Slanesh, like, those things are only basically exist because of Clive Barker. So... And it's funny you say that, because I will circle back to that. Okay. Because that is relevant in this movie. Anyways, this movie first came on my radar when it was from the same team that did The Night House, which is another fucking incredible movie that no one saw that everyone should. Alright. Basically, it's a two-hour movie about... A horror movie about the concepts of death and loss and mental health and suicide and a bunch of heavy stuff that is also a fucking masterclass in filmmaking, like in some of the little simple stuff they do. All right. Anyways, Hellraiser is basically a two-hour treatise on addiction and what it does to those around us. For anyone who doesn't actually know the premise of the Hellraiser series, there is a box called the Configuration Lament. It's a demonic puzzle box. It just looks kind of like a Rubik's Cube, but with all ancient shit on it. And if you solve it, it stabs you and then summons hell demons. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, the premise in this one is a woman finds the box, accidentally sacrifices her brother to the box, and is then told by the hell priest that she must find more victims to feed to the box in order to get her wish. By the way, one cool thing about what Hellraiser does do, I was simplifying by saying it summons hell demons, and even though the main entity is called the Hell Priest, Hellraiser always made it very specific that these entities are not demons in the conventional sense. They are, they call themselves, I don't know what movie it is, they call themselves explorers in the farthest realms of sensation. They basically come from a place where sensation, the ability to feel is so extreme that there is no distinction between different kinds of feelings. Pleasure and pain are the same thing. So Yeah, and holy shit. Again, this movie also kind of, you know, created things that everyone got upset because, oh, this time Pinhead's being played by a woman. How so what? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I don't care. Jamie Clayton fucking knocked it out of the park in both. Oh, I feel feelings. I'm not sure how I process. Well, they're also terrifying because in the past, because of budgetary things, the hell, the the Cenobites, as these demons are called, were basically leather 
daddies. They all wore like yep. leather gimp suits. Because that was Clive Barker style. Whereas this I have time, seen that this it's time. Their skin. Yeah, they the design principle. Because again, I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen clips and seen people talk about it. The design principle is that their outfits are like actually just their skin that has been molded into what they look like. Yeah, and they've got these gold apparatuses, and again, really great design, really atmospheric, really creepy as fuck. One of the other cool updates was the puzzle box has different configurations that it shifts to throughout the movie. I mean, that's cool. Yeah. And again, it's basically this whole movie trying to figure out, okay, how do I get my brother back without sacrificing any more people and doing this whole thing? And again, kind of being a treaty on, you know, addiction. How do I get my fix without hurting anybody? All right. And it has a great final point because everyone it does the same dumb joke. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, I wouldn't mind getting tortured by one of these. Yes, you would. A, there's a character that, you know, he's a total hedonist. And he signs up and they're like, okay. And then they come back to him. It's like, your idea was so bland and boring and juvenile. You did not deserve the gift we gave you. Yeah, because that's, that's a big thing. A lot of people will simplify the Cenobites down to pleasure is pain. That's not what it is. That's just the easiest way to kind of describe the impact. It's the, the impact. joke. It's the Dark Elves joke. It's all the dumb things. Yeah, that's why I tried to emphasize that the key to the Cenobites is that they are the extreme frontiers of sensation. So what his is is a machine that pulls his nerves at random configurations randomly. All right. Literally, his nerves are run through a spool. Huh. Oh. And that was their gift for the man who wanted new sensations. All right. <laughs> and they literally just call him like, you are boring and beneath us. Why the fuck do we think you were worth our time? Yeah. It's literally the movie calling these people out going, you think sex is what we are about, you unimaginative, petty child. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. We have no time for you. That sounds that sounds appropriate. <laughs> and also the funny thing is, like, all of the director said, you know, one of the criticisms, like, you know, I can't help but avoid the criticisms because, you know, I want to see. And people said, oh, it wasn't horny enough. And he said, like, there is literally a scene in which Pinhead inserts a needle into a woman's throat and we shot it to look like she was playing with a clip. Don't know how much more sexual you can get than that. <laughs> Maybe it was just because it's not all tits and ass doesn't mean it's not. And again, the director kind of got pissed. It's like you small-minded children. <laughs> uh, anyway, horny means lots of different things. Yes, and this is a very horny, disturbing movie. Again, Clive Barker. Now onto something completely different. <laughs> My number two is the movie I saw the most recently, which is Violent Night. For anyone who saw the trailer, or who didn't, whatever. Violent Night is exactly what it shows on the tin. It's Die Hard, but instead of a cop, it's Santa Claus. Actual Santa Claus. Not a, not a Santa Claus. The Santa Claus. And he's played by David Arbor, and he's fucking awesome. It's uh, John Leguizamo who kills it. I feel like for years I, I just wrote off John Leguizamo until the first John Wick movie, but even then I still wasn't prepared for the level of scenery-chewing he does as the villain in this movie it's great but he he basically him and a crew are running a heist on this mansion with this terrible family of terrible people but they have this one girl this daughter who is an innocent child and so santa happens to be delivering gifts to this house 
at the time the heist happens, and he gets involved because there's a child on the nice list there, and this version of Santa is kind of tired of the world shit. We literally open up on him in a bar complaining about how the world's super greedy. We also find out later that this particular version of Santa Claus has a backstory about being a Viking at one point, so hell yeah. And he proceeds to use those skills to brutally murder his way through the the, the robbers. I think the second kill involves him stabbing a guy in the eye with the star on top of a Christmas tree and then plugging it in. <laughs> This is on my watch list for Christmas Eve. Yeah, it's fucking awesome, and I don't want to say more about it for Ulrich's sake, because it. Dave, David Arbor is now my Santa. When I'm going to think yeah. of Santa, I'm going to think of David Arbor. <laughs> so. Here's the crazy thing. This was written by the guys behind the Sonic movies. That doesn't... I don't get that. Because this is a hard R movie. Like, they make use yeah. of the R. So, I listened to an interview with them, and they basically said they took Die Hard as their basis uh-huh. and said, what if we did Die Hard again, but with Santa? Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. It doesn't pretend it's anything else. They have a... So, the movie lampshades it, but only once, really, where Santa's bag is magic, right? You can reach into it and pull out whatever, and spoiler of a joke, at one point he's trying to pull, like, a weapon out of it and complaining. It's great, because he's like, video game, video game, video game. Why doesn't any kid want a bat? But he pulls out... Die Hard on Blu-ray throws it behind him. <laughs> yeah, no, they literally said they started with Die Hard and then sprinkled in elements of their other favorite action movies growing up, and yeah. they were really afraid that no one would buy the idea of Santa but action. Oh no, he fucking kills it. There's two two more sequences I'll talk about. There's a sequence that is a Home Alone riff, but Home Alone riff if the things that happen in Home Alone happen to an actual human body. <laughs> And then there's another sequence involving Santa in a sh- uh, like a shed with a bunch of mooks, and he's got a sledgehammer, and it's choreographed so well. <laughs> I'm so glad we're getting away with what if from what if Santa was evil. Yeah, I don't know. If evil is the right word, but definitely okay with murdering people. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, there's dozens of horror movies centered on the concept of what if Santa murdered people instead of gave gifts? Like, oh, God, God, this is the most middle school take ever. Yeah, but this is what if Santa murdered people and gave kids gifts? What if Santa was a badass? Yeah. Okay, cool. That's something we haven't seen dozens of times. Yeah, and it's it's great, and I don't want another movie, but I would love to see just like a short, like a ten minute short of the end of the night when he gets back home. Because he talks about Mrs. Claus a couple times. We don't actually get to see her. And I want to see him interact with Mrs. Claus based on this version of Santa. So. I wonder who they would cast as Mrs. Claus. I don't know. But. Immediately says Lucy Lawless. Lucy Lawless. Maybe. Maybe. But anyway, yeah. Violent Night is my favorite action movie of the year. I thought Bullet Train was going to be it. But David Arbor kills it as as Viking Santa. So. Nice. You're number one. Alright, my number one is the most Ulrich-y movie possible. This movie has sat at number one since I saw it and hasn't moved from that spot. My number one, surprising no one, is The Northman. Which is really funny because The Northman should tick all my boxes, but I end up having an opinion on The Northman that's basically the same as your opinion on The Batman. 
So, but, but go on. Interesting. The Northman is basically, basically, it's Hamlet, but historically accurate with a little bit of sprinkling of Viking mysticism in it. And Hamlet is my favorite Shakespearean play. I love Hamlet. I did Hamlet soliloquies in school for extra credit because I liked them. I, I always wanted to play Hamlet in a play. This And I love Vikings. This is, should... Sorry, continue. Yeah, no. This strips off all the Shakespearean bits of Hamlet and tells the story of a prince whose uncle killed his father and his quest for vengeance. And it's the most historically accurate Viking movie they've made in a while, which is both saying a lot and not saying a lot at the same time. And it's starring a Skarsgård who is huge. I think it's Alexander Skarsgård. Right? Yes, and it is uh, Alexander Skarsgård. Yeah, and Anna Taylor Joy, who is probably the best in Hollywood right now at eth- ethereal beauty. I don't know what to make of her. She's great in this, uh, but this is violent. It is gory. It is grim. It is unpleasant. It is brutal. It is everything I wanted this movie to be. My one and only complaint, and the thing that bugs me, is. Every time we have a cool, epic, Norse mythology-style moment, the movie pulls back and goes, or did we? It's like, no! Fucking commit to that right. shit. Hold Give on. me more I of gotta, it. I gotta specify what he means for at least one of those. There's a sequence in the middle of the movie where, where Hamleth goes to find a magic sword, essentially. Uh, the, the equivalent of you know, finding your Excalibur or whatever. And when he finds it... It's in essentially a Draugr hovel. Now, a Draugr, for a lot of our fans, probably know that from Skyrim, but Skyrim adapted it from Norse mythology. Draugr is essentially a undead warrior, but there's more going on in original Norse mythology about it, but even I don't know as much as I should. Point is, he pulls the sword, Draugr comes to life, badass fight with undead warrior thing, and then once he wins, it cuts back to the beginning of the fight, before any of it happened, and he just gets the sword. And the dead guy yeah. doesn't come to life. So. It, it's weird, like, no, you're already doing all this insanity. Why are you pulling away from it? Lean into it. Yeah. Because when they do it, it is awesome. When the Valkyrie shows up, that's fucking insane. It's like, yes, give me more of this. The movie ends with a naked sword fight on a volcano. Why are you holding back? Yeah, so to get my... Because I... This is number one, and I want to end on positivity. So to get my quick side of this out, I was bored through basically the entirety of The Northman. Despite it being Vikings and Hamlet, two things that should be an easy win for me, I found the pacing, outside of this one sequence that has Alexander Skarsgård being part of a Viking raid, which was shot amazingly. incredible. Yeah, but outside of that, I was just bored. I thought it was dull. I thought... Ethan Hawke for his bit, small bit was okay, but it was kind of a gross scene on purpose. And then Willem Dafoe's in it. Willem Dafoe's always great, and even he was only marginally okay for me. I just, I don't know. This was a, unlike, like, when you said with Batman, where you were like, I was just waiting for this to be over. I was probably about an hour into this, and I'm like, I feel like I've been in here for three hours. I, I want this to be over. <laughs> even though I was, there was, there are parts of it I love. Skarsgård is great. The The twist on how Hamlet actually interacts with his mother in this movie is great. There are lots of little parts of it that I like. I just couldn't handle how it was paced at all. <laughs> so, See, that, that makes me... I get it, but it also makes me sad because this movie is also fucking beautiful. 
like these you could take scenes and blow it up and put it on your wall and people would go oh my god that's a beautiful shot where did you take that I do like you mentioned Viking realism, and one thing they do illustrate is that the the quote unquote kingdom that Hamleth is dealing with is a farmstead. Yep, it, that's all it is, and not and it, but it's like the people running the farmstead are rich by Viking standards, but Viking standards of rich is I own a farm. <laughs> so. No, this it it it's it's semi accurate. They're they're dressed correctly they fight correctly it's like oh my god i can't believe i'm finally getting to see it just a semblance of accuracy the raid scene doesn't try to portray them as anything but brutal fucking murderers yep i'm like oh my god how, how am i this moved by something as simple as hey we talked to a historian this is what they told us <laughs> and again this is the most Ulrichy movie that ever was made it's 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 dark, it's angry, it's violent, it's kind of miserable. I love it. Alright. It's funny you say that because my number one is, I might say, the most axily movie ever made. So much so that it made it into my top ten of all movies of every year, because I keep that as a list as well. And it's been a while since something, like, cracked into my top ten for that. Uh, 2014, I think, was actually the last time something cracked in my top ten. And that is Everything Everywhere All at Once, which... Uh, I know Ulrich had an experience with. It was in his number 10 for a while, and he mentioned it as an honorable mention. And you know what? It's another example where I saw that, and I was like, I literally thought, Ulrich is going to get this and respect it without actually liking it that much. Like, he's going to know what, why this is big without having a personal connection to it. So I don't hold that against you at all. When I yeah. say that this is the most axially movie ever made, it's a martial arts movie with a badass older female lead dealing with heavy ideas of nihilism and various kinds of philosophy it's a sci-fi with built around character piece moments and just killer acting jobs like these are all the things that are either things i value most in cinema generally or things that like i have my specific niche into like i didn't expect my badass contemplative sci-fi film to also be an awesome martial arts film so i didn't know that michelle yo was a martial arts megastar like in china a long time ago but i've now watched clips of her some of her early movies and i feel robbed so for anyone who doesn't know everything ever all at once is a story about a woman who uh, runs a laundry shop with her husband and she has a daughter and a and a father and the and they're all from China uh, originally but you know she is the first generation immigrant and she's on hard times like really hard times the she's constantly stressed her father is kind of dying her daughter is in this relationship that she doesn't really understand and that she is a kind of ashamed of but she's trying not to be her father about it cuz her father ditched her for her relationship with her husband who's played by freaking short round from temple of doom in his first acting job in like 25 years and he kills it anyway so she goes to get her taxes audited and runs into jamie lee curtis who is also awesome and they're in trouble but then suddenly multiverse stuff starts happening but not trans moving to multiverse instead there's this technology where you can send your mind into your alternate universe self and then come back with skills that that version had and so there's an entity 
that's kind of the villain that is literally nihilism personified. I don't want to spoil the exact nature of what that means, although if you've somehow not seen this movie, you, I, you're, you're really robbing yourself. But yeah, the villain is nihilism. And so the villain, or the, the hero, who then has to grapple with what nihilism means, has to figure out what finding purpose in one's life once nihilism is proven to be true means which is existentialism which is what i am i'm an existentialist seeing that so perfectly there's a sequence in the movie where she basically says like if you could be anywhere why would you want to be here and she's like because i can be anywhere and this is the only place i want to be it's oh it's it got me so hard there's a sequence involving two rocks fucking rocks with googly eyes, that made me cry. I I don't know what to say about that. That just fucking mind boggles me. So, anyway. I don't think I was ever going to like this movie like I should. Yeah, like I said, I that was my thought when I thought about you in regards to it. I knew you were not going to like it, but I figured you'd get it and respect it. Because this sat at my number 10 for a long, long time. Because... This movie's fucking fantastically put together, written, directed. Everything about this movie is good. The action, everything works on every level. But my cold, black, nihilistic heart could not accept it. Like, no, don't, does not sit well with me, does not work. I reject you on principle. <laughs> For Ulrich, the villain won, as it were. As it were. <laughs> I, again, after living through everything we have lived through in, let's just be generous and say, the last two years, I have no room in my heart for this kind of cotton candy. I would, I mean, cotton candy, I would say, is oversimplifying it, but positivity, I would have accepted. Yes, but I'm, I'm using metaphors because this movie uses bagels as a metaphor. That's true. Bagels are a big metaphor in it. So are hot dogs. Yes. I, I love this movie in... The chances it takes and how well it works. Like, I'll just, I'll just speak positive about this movie because it wasn't honorable mention. This movie does shit that it shouldn't do and it shouldn't work, but it does. And there's some really genuinely good stuff in here. Fuck, I mean, if Michelle Yeoh doesn't get not at least nominated for Best Actress, I don't know what the fuck is going on anymore. Oh, absolutely. And Michelle Yeoh's always been awesome, but... at the Oscars every year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Michelle Yeoh's always been awesome, but this is... I feel like in some ways she was always building up to this role. So Well, it's the third act stuff. Yeah. Which gets the closest to kind of cracking in and like, oh, you're definitely hitting on things that, you know. She literally has to grapple with nothing matters. And if nothing matters, then nothing I do matters. And nothing I can do matters. It's, it, it's that. It's also dealing with recognizing, oh, shit. I have taken my trauma and I've passed it on to my child and I have become everything I have I tried not to be. Yeah, and also it deals with the fact that she comes to a realization that she is the worst version of herself. But that they turn that into a positive in a really interesting way, but still like the idea of I think every human has had that even super successful ones have had that thought of like regretting making decisions like am i are there better versions of me and she literally has to grapple with the most extreme version of that where she is given tangible proof that she is the worst version of herself and how does she deal with that 
Yeah, no, there's a lot of great stuff going on here. I'm so happy this movie is getting all the accolades that it's getting. But look at my number one. Yeah. That is who I am. No, yes, I mean, I think it's cool. And that cannot exist in this. It, it, it just doesn't exist. That I, is not me. I think it's great that in the same year, both our number ones are movies that I feel like kind of perfectly encapsulate what we want from great cinema. Because I want to be clear. I don't think The Northman is bad. I see all the positives in The Northman, and I respect the hell out of it. I just personally couldn't get into the some of the directing choices, as it were. So, like, I think that's interesting that, that that's the case for this year. And the last thing I want to say about Everything Ever All at Once is not even the greater theme or anything, but there is one moment in it where um, uh, I can never remember his name, but Zekwan, Zekwan, the, the guy who was short round and whatnot, I should know his name because he's awesome, and I hope he's in more movies. He has a sequence where everyone around him is fighting, he gets stabbed, but he stands up and he looks at all these people and he pleads with them to stop fighting that he doesn't know what's going on, but that can't we just be kind? It's even, especially when we don't know what's going on, when we're confused, at the very least, if nothing matters, then can we at least just be kind to each other? And that's a theme that I that want... That is the central theme of the movie. Yeah, I, I want that to be... I just want that in more people. Like... I'm not saying that, like, oh, this will make the world a utopia or anything like that, but that is exactly the kind of philosophy that if it were more common, would the world would be, at least be better. So. Yep, and that is why this is so antithetical to me. It's like, oh, it's a wonderful thing you've got there, but no. Anyway, there are our, each of our top ten movies of 2022. Looking forward to 2023, I... Don't know any movies coming out that I'm particularly excited for yet, but I still have ones from 2022 I need to see, so, you know, fingers crossed. Hey, I can't keep that shit in my brain anymore. It's getting all full of holes. <laughs> anyways, what do we think of 2022? I think this year started kind of slow, but the back half was a fucking just packed with really great movies. I agree with you, but it is funny that two of my top ten came out in, like, January or February, and then they just well, stayed like the, there. The, the top ones, the top movies settled in early and set and stayed there. But, like, when I look at the whole year, I'm like, no, this was a really kind of the back half made up for the front half. Yeah. No, I, I can get on board with that. So, yeah, let us know what you thought. Let us know what some of your favorite movies are. I'm always really excited to see what some people, people put in their top ten of the year, because I think it says a lot about people especially this year i feel like this year's our list is the most honest portrayal of who we are as people well, also considering that i think there's only one movie that is shared on our list which is prey and then the rest are like i mean we have some movies that we both like like i have an honorable mention on my list uh you have an honorable like we have honorable mentions but our lists are almost entirely different movies and i think it's kind of cool I'm really looking forward to you watching Clerks 3. I do want to see it. I need to find time to I'm go. almost expecting a sobbing phone call. <laughs> Possibly. I'm a bit of a blubbery like, bitch at times. So. Oh, dude, like I said, this movie broke me. If it broke me, it's going to shatter you into a thousand tiny pieces. I look forward to it. Oh, all right. Well, thank you all for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe. Do all the things because... As Twitter continues to burn, I don't care what they do, it's, it's, it's its own hot mess. 
we are reliant ever more on that word of mouth to help us continue to grow and live on. And that growth happens on most of the podcasting sites you can find, as well as the firesidealliance.com, particularly on Spotify, where we can be rated. And, you know, if you like this, then throw us a, a good rating because praise be to the algorithm gods. <laughs> Also, as a side note, because Twitter is burning, we have a rapidly expanding Discord that we just recently changed to a community Discord. I don't know if Ulrich will put the link in with this episode or something, but, you know... The link is included. We are going to start pushing that Discord more because we like Discord more than we ever liked Twitter. And we've got enough people on there that it's pretty active daily now. I I check it daily to see, like, conversations happening about stuff. Me and Ulrich recently had a conversation about whether birds were scary. It was pretty fun. They're not. Birds are not scary. I disagree. Anyway. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time, and as always, stay honorable.